Good morning, and thank you for being here this morning. Welcome to Trinity. Uh, thanks especially to, to Jeff and Dee for coming and sharing with us about the exciting work that is taking place uh, in Dubai that they are going to be a part of. So I'd encourage you this morning to remember them in prayer and uh, to take some time after the service. Talk to them if you're interested in supporting them as a prayer partner, wondering how you can keep in touch with what's going on, wondering how you can support them financially. Uh, go up and, and talk to them, take some information, and, uh, and let's stay in touch with what God is doing, partnering with them in the work of the gospel. I'd ask you to take out your Bibles if you have them this morning and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 27 through 34 this morning. My name is DJ, I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity, and this morning it will be my privilege to lead us in our study of God's Word. We are going through the Gospel of Matthew, a story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, a study that we're call calling long-expected, unexpected king. Jesus was promised from long ago, and his people looked forward to his coming, but when he showed up, he did not look like what they expected, and we've seen that time and again in our study of Matthew. And we're going to see it again this morning. We're going to see some unexpected things happen in our text today. Now, if you didn't get a listening guide as you came in, a little piece of paper that has our text, it has some space to take notes, you can slip your hand up. Alex will come down from the back and make sure you get one of those. Uh, so just slip up your hand if you would like one. As you join me in Matthew 9... Uh, and I have a question for you as we get started this morning, as we open God's Word. My question is, have you ever missed something that was right in front of your face? Have you ever missed something that was right in front of your face? Have you ever failed to see what you very obviously should have seen? Now, this could take a lot of different forms, a lot of different shapes. Maybe you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and there's a character that, that appears throughout the story to be a good guy and you find out at the end that he's a traitor, that he's a villain, he's a double agent, whatever the case may be, and you find yourself thinking, oh, I should have seen that coming. Like, he, he looked so suspect earlier on and I thought it might be that way, but I missed it. I didn't see it. Or maybe even more strikingly, perhaps you're, let's say, a husband. And you're looking for something that you can't find. And you can't find it and you tell your wife, yeah, I can't find it. I don't know where it's at. And she goes and looks for the thing. And within about three minutes, she finds it. And she lets you know it was right there. It was in the place that you even looked. There's something about being a, a, a husband and, or even just being a man that it makes us blind sometimes to the things that are right there. To the point where, I don't know about you, but maybe this has happened so many times that when you say, yeah, I can't find that thing, I immediately find myself thinking, please don't let her find it. Please don't let her find it. Please don't let her find it. Like, I have to have some level of credibility. But we find ourselves in that situation, I think, in many different areas of life where there's something that is right in front of us that we should see, but for whatever reason, we don't see it. And it's not the lack of eyesight. It's not the lack of information. It's not the lack of ability to comprehend. It's almost as if we're blind to what is right in front of our face. Well, we're going to see that same type of principle at play in the spiritual realm in our text that we're looking at this morning in Matthew 9. We're going to see one of the most striking examples of this idea yet as we meet two blind men, physically blind, can't see their hand in front of their face. We're going to meet two blind men who see things very, very clearly. And we're going to meet a bunch of people with sight who can't see the obvious truth that is staring them in the face. 
and we're going to learn something about Jesus, we're going to learn something even more strikingly about ourselves, and we're going to learn something about how Jesus can take even blind eyes and open them to the reality that is right in front of us. So join me this morning as we read in Matthew chapter 9, 27 through 34, and then we'll study this text together. Beginning in verse 27, it says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's God's word for us this morning. Pray with me as we study it together. Our God and Savior, who has the power to open blind eyes, we come to you this morning and we humbly ask that what we know not you would teach us, what we have not you would give us, what we are not you would make us by your grace, to the praise of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up in verse 27, in the middle of a series of narratives that we've been studying over the past several weeks, largely a series of healings. We've seen Jesus performing miraculous signs, miraculous wonders, healing lepers, Uh, casting out demons from people that no one could come within a hundred yards of. Even last week, perhaps his most remarkable miracle yet, as he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead. We've seen Jesus do things that no one else can do. We've seen Jesus perform feats that no one can explain. And we've seen him go from place to place, largely centered around the town of Capernaum, performing these miracles. And we've seen it emphasized time and time again as we've been watching. There is something about this Jesus that is phenomenal, that is beyond mere humanity. He is demonstrating a power, demonstrating an authority that is beyond anything any mere man could possess. And we've seen the crowds marvel at this. And the crowds have gathered around and followed along. And as we pick up in verse 27, we see what's now a familiar sight. Jesus moving from point A to point B and an awful lot of people desiring to be around him. Desiring to see, desiring in some cases to touch, desiring to know what's coming next. What will Jesus do? And as they pass on from the place where he raised this young girl from the dead, the crowd is following. But we've got two additional people in the crowd now, right? We've got two people who Matthew points out are there. They're probably on the fringes of the crowd. They're following along behind, and they're crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. They're two blind men. Right? Blind men cannot see. A debilitating 
condition, even more so in that culture. To be blind almost certainly meant a life of poverty, a life as a beggar, destitute, dependent on others for any semblance of food, of clothing, of a life. And so these two blind men have heard the, the stories of what Jesus has done, no doubt. They hear the crowd passing by and know that's where he is. There goes Jesus. And so they start following the sound of the crowd, following along behind and crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. And in their words, there is great significance. In their words, we're already seeing a reality a truth that's going to come out in what Jesus does, but we see it right here from the beginning, and that is this. The blind can see. These two blind men, even now, are able to see something that other people don't see. Now, to us and to our untrained ears, it might just sound like when they call out, have mercy on a son of David, that they're just saying the first century equivalent of, hey, Jesus, help us out. They're calling out. They're getting his attention. What's the significance in that? Well, there's a deep significance to their choice of words, to exactly what they say, most notably to what they call Jesus. They address Jesus as son of David. Right? Now, Jesus' father, at least from an earthly conception uh, perspective, was Joseph, right? And so why would they call him the son of David? Well, Matthew gave us the significance of this phrase, way back in the very first verse of his gospel, right? If we look back at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and he introduces his book, and he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he goes and he gives Jesus' genealogy, tracing back from Joseph, his supposed father, and the line that he comes from all the way back to David, the great king of Israel. David, or, uh, Dave read for us this morning in our scripture reading about David's desire to build for God a house, a temple. And God telling David, actually, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make your line, your descendants, your sons a kingdom forevermore. And, and David's son Solomon did inherit the kingdom. And his son after him and his son after him. But over time, that kingdom was broken. No son of David has sat on the throne in Israel for 500 years. So is God's promise to David null and void? No, the people of Israel were looking forward to a Messiah, to a Savior, to one who was a descendant of David who would restore the royal line, the royal throne. The messianic hope of the people, this one that they were looking for, would be the son of David, born in Bethlehem. And so the people have this expectation of a Messiah who would be of the line of David. And these two blind men call out, have mercy on us, son of David. They're not just referring to an ancestor for the heck of it. They are identifying Jesus as the Messiah by faith with their choice of words. And they are the first ones in Matthew's gospel to refer to him as son of David. We trace back through the previous nine chapters. We haven't seen this yet. In fact, to this point, the only people Matthew has portrayed who, who get who Jesus is, who fully understand it, were the demon-possessed men and, and the demons who possessed them at the end of chapter 8, right? Jesus comes up to the, these two demon-possessed men and the demons cry out, what do you have to do with us, son of God? Right? The demons recognize who he is instantly. The people around, not so much. 
They haven't got it. They haven't understood. Even Jesus' disciples don't fully understand who he is. But here, and don't miss the striking imagery, the first people in Matthew's gospel to recognize who Jesus really is are two blind guys. Have mercy on us, son of David. These men are following after Jesus because they want to receive their sight. They want to see, but they already possess a remarkable sight indeed. They see things that nobody else is seeing at this point. So what does Jesus do as a result of this declaration? As he's walking along and he hears, have mercy on us, son of David, does he look back and he say, hey, extra gold star for you guys, you got it. No, actually. From the text, he does nothing at all at first. They continue to go on their way. When he entered the house, so Jesus goes, the crowd is following, he continues to follow along. You can hear in your mind's eye these people continuing to say, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus gets to where he's going and he goes inside, away from the crowd, into the privacy of the house where he was going, the people that he was going to stay with. And so it would appear that Jesus just keeps walking, doesn't acknowledge these guys, they keep following, calling out. But these men have come much too far to stop now. They recognize Jesus, they have a faith in who he is, they have a faith, as we're about to see, in what he can do, and so they come into the house with him. They refuse to take no for an answer, they follow along. And they came to him and Jesus asked them a question, a question that's probably going to sound familiar if you've been following along in our study. He asked them about their faith. He places the focus on their faith in his ability to do what they're asking him to do. Verse 28, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. It made me think back to the, the first instance in this collection of healings that we've been studying. Remember the leper back in the beginning of chapter 8. And the leper says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He had no question about Jesus' ability. His only question was, are you willing to do this? And the focus lands on the exact same thing here where Jesus asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they answer, yes, Lord. They have no doubt about Jesus' ability to heal what ails them. And then much like the leper, remember what happens with the leper? Jesus could have merely said a word and cured his disease, but what did he do? He touched him. An unthinkable act in that culture, right? He would have risked catching this disease. He would have made himself ceremonially unclean. And yet he touches this man, a man who had not felt touch in many, many years. And he does the same thing here. He reaches out and he touched their eyes. Now again, to us, that might seem, hey, appropriate thing to do. I've never healed a blind guy, but if I was going to and if I could, I suppose touching his eyes might make some sense, right? But again, in this culture, this, this man's eyes, both of these men, their eyes were diseased, making them unclean. Jesus would have made himself unclean again by touching their eyes. But he's not worried about that. He places his hand on their eyes and says, according to your faith, be it done to you. 
and their eyes were opened. The same faith that caused them to call out to the Messiah, the son of David, for mercy is the means by which they are delivered from their distress. According to your faith, be it done to you. Jesus continues to teach this object lesson that we've seen time and again in these miracles about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the Bible tells us. And we are seeing stories, examples, the heroes that Jesus is is holding up, the models of following him are people who come to him with faith. These men are blind, but they see clearly who Jesus is, and they have confidence that he can heal them, and he does. He opens blind eyes. These blind men could see spiritually, even before they could see physically. Now Jesus tops it off by letting them see physically as well. Now, it could be that we look at this in verse 29. We see, according to your faith, be it done to you. And we think, so is, is faith and reward some kind of just simple transaction, right? Is it we, we show faith, and if we have enough faith, as some would preach, then God will do whatever it is we ask him to do? That, that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. According to your faith, be it done to you. The language here isn't saying, well, because you had enough faith, I am going to heal you like you needed a seven out of ten you got a 7.5 bingo you get to see while the guys with the six faith eh, they're not going to get it today that's not what's going on at all it's a it's a one-to-one correlation jesus is emphasizing that by your faith i will heal you this healing flows from faith in not faith in faith itself as we've talked about over the last several weeks but faith in jesus they came to the son of david They saw him for who he was, and they knew he can save me. Have mercy on us. We don't deserve this, right? Have mercy on us, son of David, not Jesus. We deserve this. They cast themselves by faith onto the mercy of Jesus and find themselves made whole. Do you see a pattern there for us? You see something in that story that reflects the spiritual reality that's at work as we come to Christ by faith? These blind men are able to see. And lest we think that they get healed because of their extraordinary faith, because of some innate goodness in them that we don't have, I I think this is kind of interesting. What's the first thing that they do after receiving their sight, after this amazing miracle? What is these guys' very first action? They disobey Jesus. Fantastic work, guys, right? Verse 30, their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now, we've seen this pattern a few times in these miracles, right, where Jesus heals somebody, he does a miracle, and he says, tell no one. Tell no one. And it sounds kind of odd to us, but this has been Jesus' instruction. Most likely because he doesn't want a crowd following around him for all the wrong reasons. Right? He knows that the messianic expectations of the people about this son of David, are not going to quite match up with what he has come to do. They want a political king. They want someone who's going to liberate them from the Romans, give them the kingdom back, give them the power, the influence. And that's not what Jesus came to do. And so perhaps to avoid that kind of false expectation being built up in the crowd, he says, keep this quiet. Tell no one. 
So we've seen that warning before. It's actually a stronger warning. The letter here, or the language here that we translate as sternly warned. This is a very sharp and direct instruction that he gives. This isn't just, hey, you know, maybe keep this kind of quiet. This is a tell no one about this. Remember, this healing happens in the privacy of this home. So we've seen him warn people not to tell anyone before, but this is the first time that we're expressly told that these blind men did the opposite of what Jesus told them to do. They go out and spread his fame across the whole countryside. And we can sympathize with that, right? I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do, to be thankful for what God has done for us in Jesus? And they go and they tell everybody. So, so you got to kind of ask the question, do these guys sin by telling everybody about Jesus? It feels like a trick question, doesn't it? I, we have to say, yes. Jesus told them what to do, and they did the opposite. Okay, sidebar. This isn't kind of the main point of the sermon, but it's worth talking about. It's never a good idea to disobey Jesus, right? Even when we don't understand why he's telling us what he's telling us, it's not a good deal to say, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own. They disobeyed a clear and direct command from Jesus, from God. Jesus' authority does not end at our understanding of his command. I'll follow you as long as I get it, but as soon as I don't get why you're calling me to this, I'm going to do my own thing. Never a good idea. Always obey what Jesus clearly tells us to do, even when we don't understand. So we've got two blind men with an extraordinary faith. They come to Jesus. He opens their eyes. The blind see not because they're more holy, more deserving than anybody else. We see that. We see their failure right here in the text. But Jesus is in the business of opening blind eyes. Physically, and as we're going to talk even more about here in a moment, spiritually. Because we have a problem. Now it might appear as we get into verses 32 through 34, we're done with the blind guys. Now we've got a guy who is mute, who is brought to Jesus. But we're still dealing with blindness in 32 through 34. It's just a different flavor of blindness. We're going to see not only that the blind can see, now we see that the seeing are blind. The people who have perfectly functioning eyes can't see what's going on right in front of them. So the blind man exits stage right, and another man is brought in to see Jesus. So this man is mute. Now the word in Greek there can mean either mute, deaf, or both. Could be used to describe any of those conditions. So we know he can't speak. He may not have been able to hear. But we also know the underlying cause of this. The reason is that he was oppressed by a demon, right? As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And Matthew's description of this healing is short and sweet. The demon was cast out, and the mute man spoke. Verse 33. We don't really get a flowery description. We don't get much running commentary. We just are told, this man is brought to Jesus, he's mute, possibly deaf, and now he can speak. And that, in close conjunction with the story of the blind men, can't help but call to, word, or call to mind the kind of promises that were made in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 29, verses 18 through 19 looking forward to this coming Savior, says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, 
and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. By arranging these stories, we've got blind men seeing. We've got a mute man who can speak. Matthew is, is telling these tales knowing that his Jewish audience would think, that's the things that Messiah does, right? That's the things the son of David is supposed to do. All of these healings are holding up to us a Jesus who is divine, who is the long-expected king, even if he comes in unexpected ways. These miracles serve to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior. He's the promised one. Right? Think back to what we've seen. Lepers healed. Young girls healed without Jesus even ever being in the room. Just by a word. Another young girl raised from the dead. Demons cast out of these two men who terrorized an entire countryside. Last week, the woman who had suffered with the issue of blood for 12 years touches Jesus' cloak and is healed. All of these things, one after the other after the other, and the people marvel, right? And they say, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. They're talking about the deaf man or the mute man. But it's not just that instance. This kind of serves as a summary statement about the whole of what we've seen over these last few chapters. As the crowd see all these different healings, they're saying, we've never seen anything like this. Right? This isn't the work of just another prophet. There have been prophets in Israel for a long time. And those prophets have done extraordinary signs and wonders. But the people say, we've never seen anything like this. In other words, Jesus is the promised one. And with each successive miracle it's more and more plain to see. And we're getting to the point now where it should be obvious, except when it isn't. Because in verse 34, we have the Pharisees. That's right, our good buddies, the Pharisees, always there to bring the party to a grinding halt. And what do they say when they see this amazing sign? They say, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Right? They can't deny what they've seen. They can't deny what's happened. They don't try to, but they say, why is he able to cast out demons? Well, because he's got a demon in himself, right? He's a charlatan. He's a fake. The crowd sees it plainly, but the Pharisees don't see it. Now, because we're conditioned at this point to, to read Pharisee and think bad guy, like we're not surprised when we see, oh, of course the Pharisees don't see it. Of course they don't get it. They're the Pharisees. They're here to stop Jesus. They hate him. They don't like him. But remember who the Pharisees are. These are the most devout and learned students of the Old Testament scripture in all the land of Israel. They know Isaiah. They know the promises made to David. They're familiar with all the messianic prophecies. They know their Bibles inside and out. If anyone was going to recognize Jesus as they see this stuff, it was without question these guys. The Pharisees should be the first ones for it to click and say, aha, son of David. They've got the inside track. From an earthly perspective, they're the ones who should recognize him first. And not only do they not recognize him, but they go to preposterous lengths to explain away the evidence that's right in front of their face. These guys should get it and they say, ah, he's, Jesus got his demon himself. Think about that. Think about what we've seen over the last couple of chapters. 
demon-possessed guy has been going around doing this? Like, really, guys? That's the best explanation that you have? And they're going to use this accusation again. They think this is a good comeback. Here in a few chapters, we're going to see him whip this one out again. And at that point, Jesus is going to give a uh, a pointed rebuke to them, and he's going to discuss what he thinks of that accusation. So we're not going to jump ahead. We'll save that for when he approaches it later on. But for now, ask yourself, does this make any sense at all? These guys don't get it. So ask yourself, why don't they get it? It's not lack of education. Again, they knew the prophecies better than anyone. They knew their Bibles backwards and forwards. It wasn't stupidity. I mean, we might crack on the Pharisees quite frequently around here, but these are smart guys. These were some of the most educated men in Jewish society. They're not morons. So why don't they get it? There was no mental educational reason that they should not have grasped this truth. So why don't they get it? They don't get it because they're blind. They're spiritually blind. Just as strikingly as those physically blind men that Jesus just healed, if they put their hand in front of their face, they couldn't see it. So these Pharisees cannot see spiritual truth when it's staring them in the face. Why are they blind? They've been blinded by Satan and his dark forces. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, speaking of, of people who reject Christ, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. One of the things that Satan does in this world is he blinds us. He keeps us from seeing the glory and the wonder of who Jesus is, keeps us from comprehending that. But that's not the only source of blindness that we are in danger of encountering. Because Jesus says in John's gospel that he came to, to make people blind as a judgment on them. John 9, 39 through 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, right? That the blind may see, but also those who see may become blind. Now, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What's he getting at there? He's saying your own pride has blinded you. And me coming into this world is exposing it for all to see. Right? The Pharisees believed they had it all down. They knew all the ins and outs. They, they kept all the rules. They even made up extra rules and kept those too. We see, we understand God's word clearly. And yet they're blind to Jesus. It exposes their lack of spiritual insight. Their lack of perception of God and his word and his things. And Jesus said, if you were blind, if you really just didn't get it, you would have no guilt. That's who I came to save are the people who are blind, the people who can't see. That's who I came for. But you're sitting here saying we see. And because of that, your guilt remains. And you remain in it. Because you think in yourself, you can perceive and understand these things. They're blinded by their own pride. Their own faith in themselves is keeping them from faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the truth. We're all blind. That's the condition that we all find ourselves in. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person, in other words, 
normal everyday people, the natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In order to see truth, in order to see spiritual truth, we have to have spiritual eyes. And none of us do on our own. We are all as blind as these Pharisees. Recognizing Jesus for who he is requires spiritual understanding. And they didn't have it. And none of us do of our own either. So here's the really unsettling question. If all of us are naturally blind to Jesus due to our own pride, due to the effects of sin and Satan on us in this world, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Why do we plant this church to introduce people to Jesus if, if everybody's blind, if they can't see it, they can't grasp it? Why are the Donaldsons going to the UAE to share the gospel with the lost if they're just going to encounter blind people who can't see it, who can't grasp it? If what keeps people from Jesus isn't intellectual ability, if it's not the fact that they haven't heard the right argument, if it's a blanket blindness, then what hope do we have of getting through to anyone? We have hope because Jesus is in the business of opening blind eyes. Jesus is in the business of opening blind eyes. He just did it for these two men. What hope did they have of ever seeing anything? None until Jesus touches their eyes and then they can see. The only hope that any of us have of grasping the reality of who Jesus is, of what he's come to do, is for him to open our eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God opens blind eyes. We share the gospel. God opens blind eyes. We can have hope that we can see people come to know Jesus Christ because we have a God who opens blind eyes. How did the two men in our story have their eyes open? I want you to think about this. Think about how it went down. How did these two men have their eyes opened? One, they understood their blindness. Right? You're not going to have your blindness taken away if you don't think you're blind. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees, isn't it? You say, we see, and so you're stuck in your guilt. These men understood their need, they came to Jesus in faith and they asked Jesus to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Son of David, have mercy on us. That's exactly how we can have our eyes open too. If we claim in our pride to see on our own, we will remain in our blindness and we will die in our blindness. If we realize our blindness and we come to Jesus, he is able and he is willing to make us see. That is the hope that we have and that is the hope of everyone that we will meet. That is the promise. That is why we do what we do here, folks. That is why we show up Sunday after Sunday, community group after community group, studying, reminding ourselves of these things so that we know there is a God out there who opens blind eyes. He opened mine. And he can open someone else's too. This reality, this kind of blindness is all around us. It's all around us. And I was struck by that recently 
over the past couple of weeks as I've been reading Ready Player One. It's a novel by Ernest Cline, sci-fi novel. Really fun read. In the early chapters of the novel, the main character is a teenager named Wade. And Wade lives about 30 years in the future, in a very bleak, dystopian future, not a pleasant place to live. And Wade is a poor kid. He lives in, you know, in a bad situation. And he's lamenting his current state in life. And one of the things that Wade laments in the book is that nobody told him the truth as a kid, right? Everybody just blew smoke up his behind when he was a kid and didn't tell him the harsh reality of life. I'm going to read you an excerpt from the book of Wade telling himself, hey, here's what I wish people would have told me when I was a kid. And then we're going to talk about this a little bit. Wade says to himself, here's the deal, Wade. You're something called a human being. That's a really smart kind of animal. Like every other animal on this planet, we've descended from a single-celled organism that lived millions of years ago. This happened by a process called evolution, and you'll learn more about it later, but trust me, that's really how we all got here. There's proof of it everywhere buried in the rocks. That story you heard about how we were all created by a super-powerful dude named God who lives up in the sky, that's total BS. The whole God thing is actually an ancient fairy tale that people have been telling to one another for thousands of years. We made it all up like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Oh, and by the way, there's no Santa Claus or Easter Bunny either. Also BS. Sorry, kid. Deal with it. You're probably wondering what happened before you got here. An awful lot of stuff, actually. Once we evolved into humans, things got really interesting. We figured out how to grow food and domesticate animals so we didn't have to spend all our time hunting. Our tribes got bigger. We spread across the entire planet like an unstoppable virus. And then after fighting a bunch of wars with each other over land, resources, and our made-up gods, we eventually got all our tribes organized into a global civilization. But honestly, it wasn't all that organized or civilized, and we continued to fight a lot of wars with each other. But we also figured out how to do science, which helped us develop technology. For a bunch of hairless apes, we've actually managed to invent some pretty incredible things. Computers, medicine, lasers, microwave ovens, artificial hearts, atomic bombs. We even sent a few guys to the moon and brought them back. We also created a global communications network that lets us talk to each other all around the world, all the time. Pretty impressive, right? If you're here this morning, or you're listening to this online, and in that description of human history you think, yeah, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was growing up. I'm going to ask you with all due respect to hear me out for just a minute. Really? Really? Christianity is the BS story? That really sounds plausible to you? I'm I'm supposed to believe, I'm really supposed to believe that from a single-celled organism, now never mind how that got here, that we really have no idea how that got here, and that we, in all our scientific brilliance, cannot create even the simplest form of life. But I'm supposed to believe that from a single-celled organism, with simply time and billions of years of dumb luck, we got humans. Really smart animals, as Wade says it. Now, that's kind of underselling it a little bit, don't you think? Because, I mean, some would say, well, I mean, yeah, there's, there's smart animals out there. Chimpanzees use tools, right? And, and they do, and it's pretty cool. Watch it on Discovery Channel. But do you really think, given all the time in the world, chimps are ever going to get to telecommunications networks? Or space travel? Or, heck, even a TV? We really think that's, that's how it works? Is that really a more plausible explanation 
for what we see all around us every day than the existence of an eternal, intelligent creator who created us in his image with a unique capacity for reason, for innovation, for moral judgment. Is that really a more plausible story? I'm going to suggest to you, if that's your narrative, if that's the story that you say makes sense, you're blind to what is right in front of your face. Go take a walk today. Go look at a leaf. Look at the intricacies of the design of it. There's billions of them all around you. And you tell me if you really think that's going to come from sheer chance. And that's a leaf. We can, we've got so many more examples all around us. We look at this world and we see wonder. I'm putting it to you this morning. The reason that people all around us reject Christianity is not because there's no reason to believe it, but it's because we're blind. We're blind to what is right in front of our faces. So are you ready to admit this morning that you're blind? That's really the question. That's what it all comes down to. Are you willing to admit that you are blind to the spiritual reality that's staring you in the face. Nobody's exempt from this, right? High school dropout or PhD? CEO or short order cook? Religious rule follower or outlaw rebel? Privileged insider or oppressed outsider? Make America great again hat-wearing conservative or proud progressive member of the resistance? Whoever you are, if you don't arrive at a realization of your own blindness, then you will never get anything from Jesus, and he will never have anything for you. If you realize you're blind, would you like to see? We would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. We would love to introduce you to the son of David who opens blind eyes. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, that's my story. I was blind, but now I see. Just like the, the song that we've sung many times, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. But you know a lot of people who are still blind. You love a lot of people who are still blind. Let me ask you this. If the most significant obstacle to their coming to faith is spiritual blindness, then what's the most significant thing you can do for them? Even pray. If they're blind and only God can open their eyes, then the most important thing that you can do is pray. God, open blind eyes. And as much and as often as you can, take them to Jesus. Bring them into the house. Let them see who he is. They might be like the Pharisees. They might reject him out of hand. They might offer the most ridiculous explanation you can possibly imagine for why Jesus isn't worthy of their time. Keep bringing them anyway. Keep introducing them. Support people like the Donaldsons who are going to the other side of the globe to do exactly this. Pray for them. Pray for their work. Next month, we're going to have an opportunity here at Trinity. We're going to be putting on a class that Dave's going to tell us more about in a little bit called Christianity Explored. And it's going to be a chance to invite a friend who doesn't know Christ, didn't grow up in the church, to say, what's Jesus all about? Come and be a part 
Come and find out. Come and have your eyes opened. Pray for these things. Pray for opportunities. Pray for people. Pray your brains out. Because we are blind. And Jesus opening our blind eye is the only hope that any of us have. Have you admitted your own blindness? Do you want to see this morning? Because he's able and he's willing. Let's pray.